um, of the book we have been studying, just starting this last week, and that is the book of Hebrews. A wonderful, uh, you know, assembly of letters that were written to uh, the, the, the Jewish Christians at the time, the church uh, of the Jews, and we learned a little bit about what that book was kind of, uh, was some themes and how it was written last time. I'll review over a couple things uh, just so we can stay in the same vein um, as we did last time. And uh, one thing that we are going to continue on with is this, is if you remember last time, if you were with us, um, the book of Hebrews has a format that follows what we would call something, it's called an antithesis. And that, that word, I think for us that have studied uh, languages or, or grammar and things like that, we can understand that writing style antithesis, but I'll explain it just briefly. It's a figure of speech in which an opposition or contrast of ideas is expressed by parallelism. So in my you know, simple thinking, oftentimes I, I like to try to break things down really small, and um, it's really just saying like we're looking at two different areas, two different things, by running them in parallel, right? So we're going to look at the same thing on both sides of the coin and see what's different. Um, and, and this is what the, the author does. Um, he also uses a way of describing, uh, which we began this uh, lesson titling it A More Excellent Way. He uses that um, antithesis to do that. He uses it for the church of today by layering we talked a little bit about that last time, too. Um, and he layers what was done in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Um, and then he begins to put these really extravagant uh, arguments uh, forward. And he, he's talking to the, the Jews at the time, and he's basically saying, there, there is that, but now there is a more excellent way. And he shows them this by doing something that's very profound. Um, the method of layering, which um, I don't know if, uh, Andrew, if you are running the deck tonight, if you can go to the second, I think it's the second slide. We'll get that changed. Yep, there we go. So last week we talked about paintings as an illustration, right? That we have this wonderful uh, 16th century method that was developed where you actually just put some paint down, you let it dry, and then what you do is you come back over it and you paint something else and you continue on and you continue on and continue on until you get to the end, which is something that you wouldn't see in the beginning. Um, but it is obviously a more complete picture, would you not say? Um, it makes more sense. It's more vivid. It's more alive. It has depth, right? It has substance to it. Um, and that's, in essence, what the author does here. He, he layers things um, and he shows us a more excellent way. And um, we learned last week that the term sun that we read in the book of Hebrews is talking about sunness and, and that it's giving us a more complete understanding of who God is. It gives us a more complete portrait of him, right? We can see him in a more excellent way. Um, and that was um, the things we kind of covered last week. So that's a review. But on your sheet, we'll start off with this. You guys probably know this, so I, I should actually ask you what the answer to this is. Um, but in order for anything of the current time or any new revelation to overtake that of the old, this is what the author does, it would need to put it at a disadvantage. 
So this is, a, this is what we see, that, that fill in the blank is disadvantaged. That is actually a very, very similar statement I made last week. And this is very common that you'll see even in the chapters that we'll kind of look at today, the examples. Um, so the letters in the book of Hebrews reveal to the church um, a more, and this is on your sheet as well, a complete, more complete, and excellent portrait of God, and also understanding of our own faith. And that's what we'll get into tonight, is talking a little bit more about that second component. We learned a lot about a little bit more of the more excellent portrait of God, and, and we also learned a little bit more about ourselves last week because of that, but now we're going to learn a better understanding about our faith, okay? So, I had to think of some good illustrations because that's also the way my brain works at times. Um, but you all know that I am a father of two beautiful girls, right? And I've come to realize that children will copy their parents. And yes, I am pausing for effect. In the moments you are doing something good and right, it can be the perfect opportunity to use that as a learning moment. You know, I'm a strong believer that uh, you can learn a lot. It's the practical practice of learning by example, right? So you do something and you're, you can show someone how that works, right? It's a lot easier to be a part of what you're learning than it is just to hear it, maybe. Um, and that's a learning for some people, and some people learn by hearing and watching. Um, but I'll give you an example. When I was replacing the air filter in our house, um, you know, my daughter comes along and sees me doing this. I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm, I'm pulling the air filter out. And the response is, what is that dirty and hairy thing you're holding? Well, of course, I took the opportunity to then broaden that question into explaining everything about the HVAC system and all the inner workings of how it gives us air and how it provides heat and the... And, you know, it was wonderful. It was a great conversation for me. But soon I realized that after the question was asked, she wasn't even there anymore. Um, or when you're fixing the handle on the toilet because the chain broke inside and it won't flush anymore, you can take the opportunity to share all of your knowledge about plumbing and how water is used to take away everything out of the house. Wonderful opportunity, right, to teach some lesson on wisdom and how to understand things. Pages are stuck together. We'll get there. And the be beauty of this, to be able to impart wisdom, like on how the mechanics of a car work and how the smelly stuff that you put into it provides power to make it go, right? Or how the dark, sticky, black stuff actually helps the engine run well and it keeps it healthy and moving and it, it makes all the parts move smoothly together. All wonderful conversations, right, to have. And I'll say this, uh, I don't know if my daughter will listen to this or hear this later, but Natalie, you cannot eat the garage. Um, I don't know if there's any kids out there or you have a parent of one of them that loves the smell of gasoline. Do you, do you have those out there? I, I, I hear some, uh, some comments out there, but yes, every time we walk in the garage, I can hear Natalie say, Dad, I want to eat the garage. <laughs> and yes, I just kind of look at her and say, and that's, there's nothing in here you can eat. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but it's just the way that their smell is working and their taste buds are working in the moment. And when you are on the verge of wrapping in all of your mysteries of the universe, any fathers out there that are like that? 
you begin to explain how the Holy Ghost is related to chores. And you start to make all the wonderful correlations and, 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 and how you can go back in time to explain really the creation while you're sitting there doing the dishes. It's just a miraculous thing that parents can do, right? It's a wonderful example of how we can bring them in. But saying all of that, this is what changes, though. When you're caught off guard and you're doing something that is not something you want your child to emulate. I don't think that's ever happened here. Not this crowd. No, absolutely not. Um, but it's like all of a sudden they've mastered the art of listening and observing. It's as if their eyes have become magnetized and they can't get their focus off <laughs> what you're doing. Um, they can't look away. They, they see it. And if all the willpower, willpower in the world was available, uh, it wouldn't matter. Because in that moment, it's already been absorbed into their soul. And they can't get it out. It's there. It's a part of them. And they've seen you. And, and it's a part of what you have to now talk to them about. And perhaps give some correction or some understanding. It was once said this, the good things parents do in excess, kids do in moderation, and the bad things parents do in moderation, kids do in excess. The fo this follows an example that we actually see, and, I'm, and this is the reason why I'm telling you some of these stories um, and these goofy things, but this is a pattern we see in examples that we see in the Scripture in, in the book of Hebrews. It's really quite brilliant how this is taught. It's almost taught in the style of the old rabbis of the past. And there's a very uh, rabbinical teacher kind of mentality when they use a technique kind of like what we were talking about. And this is known as, and I'm probably going to not say this correct, so I'll just say that right off the bat, um, but I believe it said afortaori. Yes, there we go. I've heard it, I've heard it a little smoother out there. But this is a Latin adverb. And it means the following. It means, for a still stronger reason, even more certain, or all the more. On your handout, this is what afatori simply means. How much more? How much more? In other words, if a skilled rabbi would use this method while teaching their students, it would be to illustrate a point, a point very significantly. He'd use examples and alternate choices of showing why something is very important to understand. It usually means that we would often categorize this in some ways like common sense. And you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. But let's just say it's for a more exaggerated understanding. So it really clicks with you. This method was used. The concept, it can be illustrated like this. You could say, if you do not trust your child to safely operate a bicycle, then afatori you do not trust him to operate a motorcycle. Seems pretty common sense, right? It's a very extreme example, but it's, it's what the author uses in Hebrews a lot to start to describe that this is a very critical and important thing that we need to understand. Uh, let me give you another more modern example. If the Green Bay Packers football team was number one in the entire National Football Conference, and have beaten the Baltimore Ravens in a non-conference game who are also number one, how much more will they be able to beat the Chicago Bears who are last in the whole national division? I, I know that's, a, that's against the Bears, and I apologize for that tonight for we Bear fans. Um, 
But that's a very uh, dramatic example, a, a first place team beating another first place team and then playing the last place team is a, is a good example of what the author does, is he makes that very extreme rationale to say, oh yeah, well, that's, that makes sense. So anybody that's listening and reading this can, can, can understand really what the point is that's trying to be made. And we extend our grace to the bears, they're, they're doing their best. Um, but the idea of how much more is used in the book of Hebrews in chapters, very importantly, in 9, 10, 11, and 12. And you'll be able to explore this on your own. We're not going to obviously get into deep in the scripture in those parts, but we'll talk about some of the pieces here. But speaking of, of grace, it is such a powerful force, is it not? Grace is powerful. Um, it's not something we can, we can reproduce, right? Uh, often it's, it's a very challenging thing, but God has unlimited grace Right? He, has, he has the ability to just pour out grace, even if what? We don't deserve it. Um, oftentimes, that's the beauty of it. That's the power that's behind grace. Um, but yet, even though grace is so powerful, it still requires what? It requires a transaction of faith. That's what needs to work within the one that is receiving grace for anything to come forth from it. I could sit and sin all my life and receive all the plentiful grace of God, but unless I act in faith, nothing will change in my life. So we don't presume that salvation can be happened without faith, or by faith the foundations of the world were formed, and by faith we move into a covenant relationship with our Lord and Savior. It's a part of every aspect that we are as a Christian. So herein lies our next focus as we continue this antithesis format we found in these letters. Um, in chapters 11 and 12, the author helps us gain revelation into what it means to have faith with Jesus. Though there is something amazing the author does in the two chapters before we focus on 10, 11, 9 and 10 really set a stage for really having a revelation in faith. Okay, in chapters 9 and 10, the author helps us gain this understanding and he also helps us shake off a little complacency too when we're talking about faith. But in your handout, in chapter 9 and 10, the author helps us gain revelation and shake off complacency as he talks about Jesus' return. And we'll see that in a, in a brief moment here. In uh, Hebrews 10 and 25, one of the scriptures we'll bring up for tonight, it's more of the concluding thought of these chapters, but it's important for us to read this. It says in verse 25, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together." as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, capital D, approaching. The author uses chapter 9, the previous chapter, to walk the Judaic Christian church through what we call today is the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? We won't be able to read it all in length, of course, because chapters are chapters, and uh, it would take a long time for us to get through that. But some passages that lead in, into this parallel and layered method are this, and maybe if Andrew can help me, I'll put some of these up there. And this is, of course, in, going to be in chapter 9, verse 1. I believe we, I did put that in the deck. Yep. Uh, and it says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. That sanctuary used here is referencing something we'll read in a verse coming up here, but it's the tabernacle. That's what it's talking about. Verse 6, let's go to verse 6 then if we can. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. 
Uh, we're just going to verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. This obviously probably sounds very familiar, right? Verse 11, let's go there. And it says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of his, this creation. Uh, verse 12, let's do that. Not with the uh, blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We're going to jump a little bit farther, go to verse 15, and just kind of let all this marinate. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And we're going to conclude with these, these two verses, 24 and 25. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. So what the author is, you can obviously tell here. What, what's he talking about? He's talking about what the tabernacle was like. But he's comparing it to Jesus through his explanation. Okay, so this is the parallel. It's the parallel we talk about in Hebrews that happens. And then he concludes this in verse 28 of chapter 9. He says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, this will be an important part we'll get to at the end here too. But that scripture is key to this. And uh, the author uses that parallel, like I said. And on your hands out, the parallel of the Old Testament tabernacle in that blank there is used to visualize Jesus returning for his church. And it's meant to stir faith in his audience. Now this audience would have, been un would have understood this. That everything he's talking about they live this. This was what they even did in Jesus' time, in his age. They, they still sacrificed. They still had the, the, the priestly, uh, you know, uh, services. They had all this stuff still in play. Um, the tabernacle had three transition areas. And Andrew, maybe we can just throw, can we throw up that slide of the tabernacle? It might be kind of small, but just as a reminder for everyone of how this looked. So obviously, I don't expect you to read anything up there. Uh, but just look at the picture and kind of visualize. You can see some of the elements there. You obviously can see the holy place. The holy of holies is within that. You obviously see uh, the brazen altar, the brazen laver, things like that. You see the entryway, the outer court, right? All of that's a part of this, right? Um, but this is the pathway it would take. So the Tamarica had these transition areas that would go from an outer court to the brazen altar, then past the altar uh, to the brazen laver, to the entrance of the holy place, where the outer veil separated the holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. It was closed off. Within there were the elements for the high priest, right? Um, and the veil that led into the holy of holies. So there is even another separation within the holy place called the holy of holies. Um, and this is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And this movement of the high priest is key when seeing the parallels presented here in Hebrews. Jesus being our high priest, right? In that Christ also died and shed his blood, but being spotless was able to pass through the holy place and enter the holy of holies. Through the veil and intercede on our behalf once, once and that in like manner as the high priest, he would return to the world or in likeness and parallel to the outer courts. 
So what the author's doing here, he's basically using Jesus as the high priest walking him through the tabernacle. And what he did is an is exact image and replacement, a more excellent way. A more excellent way, a more excellent sacrifice, a more excellent high priest, a more excellent pathway. He didn't even have to wash his hands. He didn't have to present himself in, in white linen garments and follow after the statutes that were set in the old because he was sinless and he was perfect. And his way was more excellent. This is the parallel that the author's choosing to make within this chapter. And the movement of the high priest is key when seeing this, Jesus being our high priest. When he returns, he is not presented before the congregation with sin, but he brings salvation to those who faithfully await him. The author then continues on in chapter 10 in a more detail, really how Jesus' sacrifice is, and this is on your worksheet, Jesus' sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice, but moves into this thought. He talks about this in some of the later verses in chapter 10 of Hebrews. We'll just look at a small passage here. Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. If we can put that up, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. I told you we would come back there. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So what is really being done here? And this is the culmination of this piece um, that we'll, we'll start with here. Is the author is saying how unthinkable it would be for the high priest to go through the veil, carry our sins and approach the mercy seat, apply his blood for our sins, intercede on our behalf, and after all of this to reemerge from the heavenly tabernacle, carrying now our complete salvation and find the courtyard empty. Those who once stood anxiously awaiting his return have lost hope and have abandoned their calling. You see how timeless the Word of God is? I want you to see this. This is the Hebrews, this is the author of Hebrews who is speaking to a Judaic Christian church, talking about the tabernacle. And we can see the elements that fit there, right? Because he's, he's using the layer of the old covenant that they knew so well. And he's layering on Jesus Christ and saying, isn't this the more beautiful portrait? Isn't this the more beautiful picture we have today of salvation? But yet, it doesn't just stop there. It speaks to us as the church. The message for what is thought to be for that audience is for this age, too. Because what does it do? It, it challenges to us to understand that, that just like the high priests of old, they, they would go through this ceremony and they would go through these services and they would eventually lay down the blood upon the ark and sprinkle it and commune and intercede with God himself and then they would present themselves back out, not, not being free from sin, as Jesus was, but they'd present them back out and all the congregation would still be there waiting for his return, for, for that understanding that what was taking place was finished and that year was complete. Anticipation, they would stay and they would wait. How 
great of a message it is for the church tonight that are we waiting for him to come again? He's interceding right now. He's in the holy of holies right now for every one of us. Yet one day, he will come out of that, and through the veil, he will present himself. And will we be a church waiting for him in that day? That's what the author is saying. It's a challenge. I understand it's a challenge to us as Christians, but will we hold the faith until that time? Will we run the race with endurance until that time? So more bluntly, the author is stirring his readers, not just with any uh, preemptive thought of his audience, but he's saying, how ironic that we would forsake the assembly during the very time the great high priest is making intercession for us. That is today. That is now. We're here together. We're assembling. That is today. We're not forsaking it, those that are here, but there are many that are. Not realizing that right now, our high priest is interceding for us. For your very life, for your very soul, he's trying to get you in the right place and praying for you and, and there for you in any moment you might want to call on him. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Um, in this parallel, the author alludes to the Israelites who, while waiting for their intercessor Moses to come down from Mount Sinai, a type of the true tabernacle, they left the assembly of the faithful to return to an assembly of idolaters. Because what were they doing? The same thing that took place that we see here, talking about the tabernacle, actually did take place back in Exodus 32 and 1. And the words that are used there, and actually, can we bring that scripture up there? There we go. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who... Brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They lost hope. They lost, they lost motivation to stay where they were doing, to, to listen to what the instruction was. And, and in this exact same parallel, back to even that time, to the time of Moses, he's describing who assembled. That word assembled around Aaron is the same word that's used in Hebrews 10 and 25. And we've read that multiple times. It's not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. It's the same word that's used in both of those scriptures. Instead, as we wait for the conclusion of our faith, we are to respond with increasing hopefulness by an example of us coming together. And when the Israelites left the assembly of the faithful Israel in order to experience a more immediate and tangible experience, they made a golden calf. We remember that, right? And, and that wasn't a good situation for them because God wanted to destroy them, but Moses stood in the gap. But they, they, they went their own way because they wanted something immediate. They wanted something tangible to look at, to see right before them. And the Christian is to remain, as this example in Hebrews, the faithful. They're supposed to stay faithful instead of going back to what is familiar and what was found in the law of Moses. Can you see why this letter was so important to give to the Jewish Christian church? Because they, they knew what worked. It was familiar. It was tangible. The sacrifices of the animals, they knew what worked. They knew how it happened. Uh, it was expected. It was in front of them. It was on a, a cadence that they could, they could lean on, right? But Jesus 
is the more excellent way. And we see that through the expression here of the Hebrews. He's saying, wait a minute. Don't sacrifice what is tangible, what, what is right in front of you. Don't go after that. Don't go after that. In fact, you're going to wait. And you're going to be faithful. Because what Jesus' promises is so much better. Amen? So, and, and when we are not from that age, which we, we obviously realize we're not from the Jewish lineage, at least most of us probably here tonight, um, our response with each passing day, we become more, uh, we don't become more, uh, you know, distracted. We don't become more complacent. But what we do is we actually become more abundantly faithful in each passing day. We become abundantly faithful, and this is in your handout, in assembly and as the church in action is the second fill in the blank. And we should do this as we get closer to the day of Jesus' return. Each passing day. This is the call of the author here. So in chapters 9 and 10, we get a glimpse at where the author's going with his reference. He talks about the old in parallel with the new. He compares that of the tabernacle to the high priest and the high priest that we have today in Jesus Christ. And he uses a very descriptive way to talk about this as we go into 11 and 12. But what he talks about it in the mean is in our faith. It is assuming, it's easy to assume that faith is something that is very common throughout the Bible. It really isn't. The word faith actually means a variety of different things when we read it in Scripture. Um, and we look at the different authors and the, and the seasons and the language and the dialects and the things that were written at the time, we, we see that actually the author had a little bit of influence in the choice of what they used for the description of the word faith. And the Word of God um, will always be important. We un understand that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we know the Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and for correction, for instruction, and righteousness, for that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what the choice is, how they use the, the terminology in the, in, the, in the more ancient languages is very important. It is. Um, so when we look through examples like Luke, when we look at the word faith, Luke uses a Greek term, apostolos. For Luke, apostolos is more of a technical term. It was actually calling out a unique group of men, the faith. We all here today are a part of the faith. That was Luke's choice in how we explain that, and he, he used the word faith for that. And Paul would use it more broadly as the faith as in a movement. It's, it's not like just directed at a certain people, but it's, it's the movement of Jesus Christ. We, we can see that in many things in the world today. But for instance, the use of faith could refer to the following in the New Testament. And this is on your worksheet. There's four of them. The Christian movement as a whole, which I just uh, explained. Number two is the acts that led us to repentance. That is faith as well, right? Number three, a life lived in the pursuit of God and his promises. Number four is how we should respond to God's promises. And this last one's where we'll morally focus, but this lies the antithesis of the book of Hebrews again in its regard towards faith. Um, we need to con 
compare what was faith in the Old compared to what we have in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, saints lived before the promise. We know that. Uh, before Jesus had arrived, and there were only a few elders mentioned in Scripture that were even able to see a glimpse of him in their very old age when he was just a boy. Um, I'm not talking about the faithful fathers of the old, but some of the elders that existed that had the promise given to them. They were able to witness it. Um, in Hebrews 11, chapter 13, it says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And if we go to verse 39 of that same chapter, it says this, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. So today, the Christian in the church, which we are part of, we, we have seen the promise. We've experienced the promise. Um, when the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11 and 1, which is a scripture we use all the time to explain faith, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He is now about to, after that, as you, as you look and as you see, and I even have it printed out right here, is he'll give a list which is on your worksheet. See if anybody noticed that. Of those who literally died according to the type of faith they had. And we, as apostolics, usually use Hebrews 11.1 as a foundation of our faith today, which it has merit towards. But quickly looking at this definition of faith, as we sometimes refer to it as, it's followed by a walkthrough of old covenant saints who through faith hoped, but never did get to see the promise. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. By faith, Noah, being divine, warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. You can see the theme, by faith, but not seeing, by faith, but not seeing, by faith, but not receiving. Um, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. Even all these died in the faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, which were assured of them. They still embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come by faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on top of his staff. The examples go on. It continues on through that whole chapter of 11. Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were afraid. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, suffered affliction, passed all the pleasures of sin, became a reproach for Christ. He, he forsook Egypt. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they circled them for seven days. Like I said, it goes on, and please read it if you haven't in the past, but these first verses just begin to ex explore the idea of the old covenant faith, what they experienced, what they went through. For them, the promise was simple. If he said it, he would do it. That's what they leaned on. If he said it, he will do it. 
It should not be overlooked that also in Hebrews 11.1 we see the clear term, things not seen. This refers to that promise, of course, which we, we understand. Though we as New Testament believers have seen and experienced, and those two are on your handout as well, though we as New Testament believers have seen and experienced the promise. In fact, we not only see and are able to experience the promise, we also see the evidence of those who came and gave their life before us. Why? Because we have it. I hope you see where we're going with this. About how our faith is in parallel, but also different than that of the old. Hebrews 2 and 9 reminds us of the difference we have. It says this in verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with the glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In a similar fashion, Hebrews 12 and 2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The faith that the author is stating here is a faith that has not yet received. So, how does that apply to us today? That's the question. How does that same faith apply to us today? To understand this, we must see that contrast. And in your sheet, in chapter 11, is twofold. The purpose of chapter 11 is this, in twofold. To remind, number one, his congregation of the parallels between themselves and the saints of old. So themselves as first saints of old. And number two is to remind his congregation of how the parallels between themselves and the saints of old are not the same. One thing we will always remain one thing that will always remain the same and that is that Jesus will always have our affection and our faith should always point to Jesus. That doesn't change. But the author says this in Hebrews 10:38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's kind of a parallel again to what we read in chapter 9 and 10, right? When they walk out of the courts, take themselves out of the presence of God. This is actually a callback to uh, Habakkuk 2, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and I'll have them put it up there for, for this. It says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, the proud his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by what? By faith. In both passages, it's said that the righteous one will live by faith. The first three verses of chapter 11 draw this portrait of the Old Testament saint. And in a spectacle of faith, we read through chapter 11 that these men and women of God would live and they would suffer as if he was already with them. That's the faith that he's trying to show the, the audience. They live this faith as if Jesus was already with them, yet they saw it not. Now, just kind of think about that a little bit. 
And think about our current state. For them, the promise was the word of God, the same word that created something visible out of nothing. Abraham, for instance, accepted faith in place of tangible things, tangible evidence. Faith was his only evidence. That's what he had. Is he just had to believe. That's all he could march forward with. And that God would fulfill his promises. In Hebrews 11 and 1, faith is defined as evidence of something not seen, yet the New Testament believers are reminded that we see Jesus. And the believer is encouraged to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And that's in verse 2 of chapter 12. So the church lives in the age of the Messiah and the evidence of Jesus himself, not just a temporary substitute. Uh, We have the Spirit of God living within us. We have the Holy Ghost. Having been justified by faith and by this same Spirit to be empowered to live a holy life under the righteousness example that he set before us. This is why the, the author says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He himself demonstrated Old Testament faith, believing suffering, and looking to the promise. But he also is the goal of our faith. Unlike the Old Testament saint, we are uniquely equipped in this age. We have power. It raises the stakes, church. It raises the stakes because he is with us. The message of the church to the church was this, if Abel, Noah, Abraham, and so on can endure the greatest persecution without having as we have today, what excuse would the church of the present age have to squander? Come on. Have to squander what we have been given in faith. What excuse does the church have in the dispensation of grace for abandoning the assembly of the church? A church that began and lived with a generation of Christ's resurrection had witnessed the promise and has the very promise with them. And on your sheet, we'll go through this last piece here. The advantage of the post-Pentecostal Christian is this. I know there's a bunch here. There's only a couple filling the blanks, but they had the voice of the prophets, but we have the voice of the Son. You could put Jesus there, too. They had Moses, the servant of God. We have Jesus, the Son of God. They had a temporary covenant. We have the eternal covenant. They had the Sabbaths. We have the Sabbath. They had the blood of bulls and goats. We have the blood of Christ. They had faith. We have the spirit and faith. And they had Aaron, and we have Christ In other words, the Christian has enormous advantages over the Old Testament saint in every possible way. This is the example of the author. It is the more excellent way. We all know the timeless power of the Word of God has been over the ages, but the author speaks to this audience of that time, but it continues on through our time. And as the church repented, baptized We're baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the Holy Ghost. So do we as a church today. And that's the example that we have is that if faith alone could carry the patriarchs, how much more can our faith now carry us until the day? The New Testament believer will also need to have a more excellent faith. 
seeing that Christ is now interceding in the heavens and we are living in the time between his two appearances. And this is where we can conclude this exploration in Hebrews 12. I think this is, make sure I have the right scripture. I'll just read it. I don't know if I have the right reference there. But it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great of a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I'm going to conclude here. I know we've got a few minutes left, but I just want to make this final point with this understanding of a more excellent faith. The key word to focus on in that, in that verse, um, and I don't know, Andrew, did you have that one up when we put it up? Okay, good. Um, so you guys have the reference. But, uh, it's the word witness. It, it lies on the whole weight of the letter here, this word witness. And I'll explain why. In contrast to the Christians of the church of this age who have all the advantages, the ancients ran a difficult uphill race. But they made it to the finish line, merely by faith. But the word witness used here is very much in the same expression as a witness would be used in the judicial system. The cloud of witnesses referenced in that scripture most often assumed to be an image of the ancients up in the clouds, cheering us on as we run the race. Right? That's, that's what we read and that's what we think of, right? It's very, very, it just sounds that way. And the impression may not be off, and I can't tell what, but, but think of it this way. Could it be that the author means to suggest that the cloud of witnesses, and in a more judicial description, and that, that's, I'll fill in a blank there if you want to fill that one in, testify to the fact that they who were faithful have persevered to the end already, even without the advantages of Jesus. What excuse would the church who is blessed with a more excellent way have for not being able to make the finish line? In other words, this great cloud of witnesses is less presenting themselves as cheering spectators, rooting for us as we live faithfully today for the church, but more likely they are presented as standard bearers who are in all likeness prepared to function as witnesses against those who have already fallen away. And let me, let me just clarify a little bit further. In, in the Old Testament, there was always two or three witnesses, if you remember this, to condemn or to come in agreement on a course of action, right, and what they would do. Two or three in the Mosaic Law. That's all that was required. But the Christian today is up against a whole cloud of witnesses. This is why the author marched all of the faithful before us in chapter 11. Isn't it just like a courtroom when they call every witness through the door? One by one, they announce them through and their pertinence to the case at hand. Your life is in the hands of the witnesses that came before us. They proved that by faith alone, they could endure and make it to the end. What a greater challenge we have as a church today because we've been given a more excellent way. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Ghost. We have the church of this age. What excuse do we have then if we can't cross that line 
I'm fairly certain this was the intent of the author. Do not squander what you've been given. Respond. Move forward. Endure and seek after. Pursue. For what more excellent faith we have been given as the church today. If we could all stand. I've loved reading some of the details of this. Um, not everything, of course, that I'm bringing this revelation, this, these are things that other scholars have, have come up with. They've put hard work and effort into discovering and writing about. Um, but sometimes these things we, we don't talk about. And I think it's important for us to understand where these books are going and how they're written to us as the audience of today and also, of course, the audience that was at that time. But how, how the beautiful nature of the parallels come together in Hebrews is wonderful. It's beautiful. Read it for yourself. Discover things on your own. Be, be excited about researching and diving in headfirst. Because without this, we wouldn't have any example of faith. But because we have it, we are challenged to live by such a greater level of faith and understanding that we've been given today. And I know each and every one of you today, I can look at your lives, I know many of you are answering the call of God, everyone's moving in some direction, but if you feel like you're not sure where to go, just keep faithful. Stay faithful. And God will take you where you need to go. Amen? Why don't we close in prayer tonight before we go? God, we thank you, Jesus, so much for this understanding, for your wonderful authors, your writers, God, that you've inspired them to write such wonderful things for us, God, to understand in this time, God. Let it just carry with us, God. Let us feel like some of that uh, conviction maybe perhaps, or maybe something that can lead us and energize us to, to live more in a way that we can for you, God, to answer that call tonight, God, to continue in our faith that we've been given and the Holy Spirit that you've put within us, God, that's given us power and authority in this day and age, God. Truly bless everyone that's here today, Lord God. We want to live our best life for you, Jesus, because we have been given that more excellent way. We thank you, and we pray this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.